name. Amen. Well, do keep your um, passage, uh, your Bible's open at Genesis chapter 22. It is a big chapter. It's an incredibly famous chapter, isn't it? Um, here's Rembrandt's rendition of it. Here's Rembrandt. The, the one I prefer is Caravaggio's, The Sacrifice of Isaac. Look at it. It's a very famous passage. It's also a really hard chapter. I've got four boys, Johnny, Dexter and Arthur. There they are. Um, I'll just show you a few more pics. I love these guys. Here is um, here's Henry when he was born. He's kind of the one uh, that my wife is holding. Uh, what, what have we got next? Uh, here's us on holiday. I think um, uh, Dexter was trying to steal my wallet in this shot. Um, I love these guys. Johnny, Dexter, Arthur. They're, f- they're five, four, two, and six months. They all love climbing on my shoulders. We have a great time. We have really good fun. I'm a dad, obviously, and when I read this chapter, chapter 22, it's a really hard passage. I've got four boys who love bundling, who love me tickling them. They love playing Lego. They love colouring in. They love writing little notes to me. Here's a note that I received from Johnny. Um, Thank you. It says on the front, it says, Dear Daddy, thank you for giving me cuddles and kisses. Sweet, isn't it? Somebody's trying to hit me up for some Lego or something that he wanted. (laughs) I've got four amazing boys. I love them to pieces. And I would not want anything to happen to them. When Arthur was four weeks old, he got whooping cough. No, five weeks old. My wife said, make sure you get it right. Five weeks old, he got whooping cough. And I can remember holding him over his cot, uh, gasping for air, watching to see if he'd turn blue, to see whether we'd need to whip him away to hospital at any time. It was a horrendous Horrendous experience. I don't know what I would do if anything happened to any of my boys. My greatest fear is to bury one of my boys. So chapter 22 is a tough passage. It's horrendous for anything, uh, for anyone to lose a child. I'm sure there'll be people here, perhaps people here who've lost a child. It's even worse for a parent to have anything to do with losing a child, anything, any responsibility for their death. And the premeditated, cold-blooded murder of a child, that's just unthinkable, isn't it? Genesis 22, verse 2, Take your son, God said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I tell you about. It's a really tough chapter, isn't it? If you've been following the last three weeks, uh, we'll, we'll know how tough this is for Abraham. He's waited 25 years for his son. He is now over 100 years old. His wife uh, has been barren for most of her life until this son was born. Isaac is the miracle baby, we said last week. He is the child of God's promise. There's no way this baby was coming about if God had not promised it. And now we get, we ask the question, is God going to kill this child? Is God going to kill this child? Here's, a, here's another picture. Paul Summers, convicted uh, in 1991 of killing 10-year-old Sarah Moslem. This chapter puts God up against him and says, is God potentially a child killer? It's a tough chapter. And you have to ask, why would God do such a thing? 
Why would God ask of such barbarity? I know some of you will be here, sat here thinking, well, I know God to be that cruel. I feel like he taunts me every day of my life, asking me the impossible. I know that God is the hypocrite who commands people not to kill. It's a tough chapter, isn't it? Why would God do such a thing? It's also a rich chapter. It's written brilliantly. And so what I want to do is get back into Genesis 22. So if you've closed your Bibles, open them at Genesis 22. And let me, let Genesis 22 paint a picture in your head. And then we'll ask, why would God do such a thing? So Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. Immediately we know something that Abraham doesn't. This is a test. Test, take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Notice the emphasis, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, the son you waited 25 years for, the miracle baby, which you were commanded to name laughter because his arrival was so unbelievable. Take your son, the son you love, the son who writes little notes to you, the son who creeps into your bed in the morning and and gives you a cuddle, the son who puts his arms around you just so that he can smell you. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Moriah isn't just a, a random place. It would be the site where the temple in Jerusalem Uh, was built. It would be the epicentre of the sacrificial system. A burnt offering uh, wasn't any old kind of sacrifice. It was brutal. It involved cutting uh, cutting up the animal into pieces and then burning the animal until there was nothing left but dust. It's called a holocaust offering. Nothing left but dust. This is straight. This is a Kill Bill stuff, or Dexter, the serial killer, or True Blood, all in one. But this is a real dad and a real son, and real barbarity is on the table. It's brutal. The shock of the test is only trumped by Abraham's response. Verse three. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. He's mechanical. He's cold. He's numb. He just smashes through his to-do list. Bang, 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 bang. You read that? Or is he a mess? Do you notice there is no emotional adjectives in here? We're just left to fill in the emotion. One commentator points out that um, cutting the firewood firewood after you've saddled the donkey is equivalent of starting the car and then packing your luggage for the holiday trip. Was he a mess? Perhaps he hadn't slept. Perhaps his head is all blurry. Perhaps his eyes are full of tears. We don't know. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. We're just left to fill in the emotional blanks. Simply describes what happens. It allows us to to paint this real picture in our head. You can keep talking about it, debating how he was feeling, what he was doing. Trent said, uh, did, did God speak to him in the night? Is that why he got up 
early in the morning. One girl in our home group, um, in our hive group, should get that right, hive group this week said, uh, was there a social norm uh, when you went at travelling to travel first thing in the morning? No, not if you're going to kill your son. It's horrendous, isn't it? Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. What did they talk about for three days? Three days of walking, three days of camping, three days of man time. What did they talk about, you wonder? It's tent stuff. Verse 6, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Did Abraham really think that he and Isaac would return? The, the, the final bit of the, the climb was uh, too steep for the donkey. Um, so Abraham loads up his boy with enough firewood to burn his body. Imagine that. Did Abraham really think that they would return? He climbs the final ascent to the top of the mountain. He takes a torch in one hand and a knife in the other. Imagine Walking up with your boy. They climb. And you can feel the tension, can't you? You can hear the silence until Isaac breaks it in verse 7. My father, here I am, son. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Verse 8. It's amazing, isn't it? Amazing faith. We've finally seen Abraham, the father of the faith, in action. He's killing it. He's getting it. He's trusting God. He's finally uh, recovered from the, the train wreck faith that we've seen all along. But you read this and you, you, you can't help but think that there's just a, a smidgen of doubt in his head. You can't help but think that, can you? That he's kind of somehow giving Isaac some sort of loving reassurance. You know, like dads do. Don't worry, son. It'll be alright. Either way, it's fully intense. They arrive at the place. Verse 9. Abraham builds an altar. Arranges the wood. We're in slow motion now. Extreme close-up. He arranges the wood. Binds his son. And he binds him just like he would a sacrificial lamb. He places his son Isaac on the altar, on the top of the wood, really slowing down. The hearts are beating. And we're screaming, when will this test end? Surely he's gone long enough. Surely he could have uh, passed the test at day two or three. But then we get verse 10. Abraham reached out, took the knife to slaughter his son. And just when he's about to do it, just when you want to look away, we get Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Never before has a a voice from heaven been so welcome. He says, uh, the angel says, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham passes the test, but, but what a test. He passes the test and the greatest 21st century, uh, 21st birthday speech in history has been made. Can you imagine the, tw- do you remember dad when we went for that walk? 
you can breathe, can't you? You can breathe. He gets to the point where we know he would have done it. He raises the knife. The sun is in place. It's clear. But verse 13, God provides a ram. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And we all breathe, few. God has provided. That's the big lesson, isn't it? God has provided. The phrase is, is uh, repeated three times. Abraham names the place the Lord will provide. The Lord has provided. And back to our question, why, why would God do such a thing to Abraham? Who would put someone through that? He's painting a really brutal picture. Uh, to be honest, I've been a little muddled about why on earth, uh, why on earth uh, God would do this to Abraham. The commentators don't seem to agree. Uh, uh, they kind of, some say that I should now say, well, you need to be like Abraham. And some commentators say, well, now you know that God will test you. Be prepared for the test. They're biblical answers, but I'm not sure that's the purpose of this passage. I think uh, to get to the bottom of it, and you've got to remember I'm a rookie, uh, just starting out in this preaching malarkey. To get to the bottom of it, uh, we need to understand that Moses wrote this down. Moses wrote it as history. He wrote it down for the benefit of God's people Israel. Probably after they, probably after they'd escaped from Egypt, just before they were about to enter the promised land. Now for Israel, they would, would have identified with Isaac. Their focus would have been on Isaac because they were Isaac. See, without Isaac, there would be no Israel. He was the child of the promise. He was the first generation of the promise that God has made back in Genesis chapter 12. So as this story is read out to Israel, they would have been acutely aware of what was riding on the test. No Isaac, no Israel. They'd have been deeply thankful for the provision of the ram. No Isaac, no Israel. And they would have been deeply thankful for the life of Isaac. Life of Isaac equals life of Israel. And they would have been deeply confident that they could trust God because he keeps his promises. God shows himself to be completely faithful. It's like one of those, uh, you know, when you're uh, going to uh, buy a, an iPad cover or something, and uh, to, to show you that it's really sturdy, they drop it off a building and show you the thing still escapes. That's the equivalent of what we get here. Israel can trust God as their father. God says uh, in verse 22, 16, that he is completely faithful. By myself I have sworn, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Israel would have heard this, standing probably as a, as a multitude in the desert. You have to remember that driving this whole story is this unilateral promise of God that says he will do it. Remember the Heston Blumenthal moment where, where God split the animals in two and only God walked through and said, I will keep my end of the bargain and I will keep your end of the bargain. God will do it. That's what's driving the story. And it drives the story into some pretty weird places, as we'll find out over the course of this series. 
And it drives the story out of some impossible situations, as we've already seen. Israel were to know that God could be trusted with their lives. That God would not let his miracle babies die in the desert. That he would keep his promise. That he would keep his promise. That he would bless them. That he would reverse the effects of the fall. Now to us, when we uh, start to read this account as a child of God, it it starts to make sense. Uh, We can see that God can be trusted. That we as his children can can, can trust God to keep his promises. To act on his promises. This horrendous act in Genesis 22 is a shadow. It's a shadow of a, a more horrendous act of the cross. You might have spotted some of the cross references, some of the uh, clever ones amongst you might have seen the three days walking, the sun carrying wood up a hill, a substitution at the point of sacrifice. Anyone spot that? Well done. It's all deliberately designed to show us the brutality of the cross. And the brutality of the cross shows us what is needed for God to keep his promises and to rescue us for eternity. See, the risk of reading this passage and say, oh, I really should have the faith of Abraham, is that you kind of, you can walk away in despair, can't you? God told me this, I don't, I don't think I could take my son up a mountain. But as we look at this story from Isaac's eyes, When we look at it and see that we are children of God, we can see the cross in all its glory. It's a massively helpful view of the cross. I've just got three quick insights. Uh, We'll go quickly and then I'll wrap up. Three quick insights to focus us on the cross and the glory of the cross. Firstly, we are to see the faithfulness of God in this story. You cannot read this story and not be in awe of Abraham's faith. It's spectacular. I could not have done it, I've said. I could not have done it. Uh, Abraham's faith in God's promise is amazing, isn't it? It's incredibly amazing. Anyone want to volunteer their husband out? I've got the knife here. We can, you can show us how much you, you, you trust God. Anyone up for it? Didn't think so. Abraham's faith is, is only outdone... By the faithfulness of God. Abraham could only do that because God kept his promise to form a nation, to give Isaac children. That's the logical step, isn't it? That he gives Abraham children, then give Isaac children, and then we're into nation making. You see, at the cross, God is both the sender and the obedient sent one. God the Father takes God the Son to his death. And he does that to give us absolute confidence that he keeps his promises. He himself dies. Jesus wasn't an innocent third party. He is part of the Godhead. He himself goes willingly so that we might be rescued, so that we might be called children of God. We can't understate the importance of that covenant ceremony in Genesis 15 where God says, I will do it. I will keep your end, my end of the bargain 
and I will keep your end of the bargain. He is that faithful. He is that trustworthy. And that gives us enormous hope, doesn't it? The second insight that I want us to draw us to is the substitute from God. The substitute from God. Just as the ram is given to die in the place of Isaac, so Jesus is given to die in our place. That one's a a little bit more obvious. And and the thing about Genesis 22, the thing that it adds to the story or uh, helps... The thing that Genesis 22 uh, um, has that helps us understand the cross is that the ram is this kind of disposable substitute, isn't he? Abraham finds, finds it in a bush, just like a chip packet. Isaac is, the, Isaac is the precious one here. Well, on the cross, Jesus is the precious one. The God who prevented Isaac from offering his one and only son loved us so much that he gave his precious one and only son to die as a substitute in our place. This is the centrepiece of Christianity, the centrepiece of the New Testament. It's what everyone bangs on about. It's what makes Christians do the weird stuff that they do. Jesus is given for us so that we might not taste so that we might not taste death. Jesus is given to die as a ransom to free us. Jesus is the righteous one given for the unrighteous you and I to bring us to God. Jesus is the substitute that enables God to keep his amazing promise. Promised in Genesis 12, confirmed in Genesis 15, and then sealed in Genesis 17. See, we can look at the cross, and we can see what our sin deserves, what our rebellion, living our lives independently of God, what that deserves. That is the judgment of God. That's what we deserve. But we can also look at the cross and see our substitute And see just how much we are forgiven. It's amazing as we look at the cross. Romans 8.38, Paul says, Because of the cross, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As you look at Jesus our substitute, you see that this uh, barbarity on the cross is what is needed to rescue us. Boy, it must be serious, eh? must be serious. The substitute from God. Third insight, the life given by God. Uh, Israel were uh, uh, to um, read uh, Genesis 22, and they would have been deeply thankful for the life given to them because of Isaac. Well, we're to look at the cross and be deeply thankful for the life given to us in Christ. Deeply thankful. Instead of living as enemies of God, because of the cross we can now live as friends of God. Instead of death, we are now given eternal life. I wonder when the last time you dwelt on eternal life was. When you thought about eternal life, the fact that you will not die. That you will get to 70, 80 And you will die, but then you will be raised again to a perfect world. A world where there is no more mourning, crying or pain or suffering. 
When I was a teenager, I used to play a game called Doom. Anyone remember that? A computer game? Doom. My friend had it. And um, I was not very good at it. I used to die after about three minutes. It's a game, if you don't know, it's a game where you go around shooting aliens. They were aliens, right? Yeah. You go around shooting aliens. And I used to die after about three minutes until my friend gave me the cheat code that meant that uh, you could have infinite life. And it was brilliant, this game, after that. I hated it, first of all. It was brilliant. The game was changed forever. Well, how much more then should our game be changed forever if we know that we will not die? If we know that we will be resurrected, when we know that, that Christ has taken the judgment of God, the punishment of God, that he has gone to death for us so that we can live forever? change our game, shouldn't it? God has changed the end game. It should change the way we live. It should mean that we live outrageous lives. Outrageous lives. Radical lives. In the mundane things we do. There's not many of us who are going to do um, some of the great things that some of the great Christians have done. But God can use us. God can use us to transform other people's lives as we proclaim the gospel, share the gospel over a cup of tea, over a sandwich, over dinner. You see, the mundane is transformed when we know the certainty that we will spend eternity in heaven. Hebrews eleven nineteen says that Abraham considered God to be able Abraham considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Are you confident of that? Will you look at the cross and see that God will raise you from the dead because of Christ? Are you certain of that as a child of God? What would you do differently if you were certain that you would be raised from the dead? If you knew that you were dying tonight but being raised tomorrow, what would you do differently? What, would, what risks would you take? What would the normal stuff look like in your life? That's the life of faith that the Bible talks about. And when we talk about the life of faith, I guess we can fall into two camps uh, when it comes to living by faith. Uh, one One group will be thinking, well, I just can't trust God like that. I I just can't do it. I, I try, I want to, but I just can't do it. Maybe your week has been like that. Maybe that you have fallen to that sin again. You just keep letting God down. Say, I can't be Abraham. That's an impossible level of faith. And he can't be Abraham. That's an impossible level of faith. You'd be right. It is impossible. And you're not Abraham. You're a child of God. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus is the author of our faith. And check this out. He is also the perfecter of our faith. So when it seems too impossible, too hard to trust God, we shouldn't be driven to despair. We should be driven to the cross because Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. Because of the cross, God looks on us and sees Jesus. And Jesus has a a greater faith than Abraham. Jesus has a greater faith than Abraham. That's what God sees and that should be life-changing. 
Well, I guess uh, the other group, uh, the, the group that I can't, uh, slightly uh, feel more attuned to, uh, the group were thinking, well, I don't really need to bother them, do I? I can just sort of get on with things. I can carry on with my private faith. I can uh, carry on clinging to my, the gods of this world, building up the cash in my bank account, living the life that I want to live. And I'll go to church and just tick the spirituality box just to be on the safe side. Well, if that's you, you need to hear James 2.20. James 2 says, Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was perfected. Yeah, we can't be like Abraham But we need to work as though we can, because Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. We can't earn our way into God's good books, but Jesus has the author and perfecter of our faith. We are saved by grace and grace alone. So as we close, will you look at the cross and see the substitute dying in your place, taking God's judgment, taking God's wrath in your place? Will you look at the cross and see the life that God has graciously given you, given you forever? And will you let your mundane life be shaped radically by the future and certain promise that we will have eternal life if we trust Jesus as Lord? Will you do that?